Hello, and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bertnika. So Sarah, I, I feel like you're pretty into uh, health, like uh, health optimization and like uh, you know, the Andrew I saw Huberman and, live yeah, you in went Toronto. To see him live, right? No big deal. Yeah, I was one of the thousands. I think that puts me in a certain bucket of people. Yeah, that are that are health optimizing, cold plunging. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I would I would put myself in that in that category. But it is like a growing thing. Like I, so many people my age, uh, you know, in in their late twenties, early thirties, are getting into this health optimization thing. Uh, I think through the podcast, like Huberman, through all these different things. It's definitely a trend that I've noticed. It's a big trend. Like you're definitely, I mean, there's so many different levels of it. I mean, I'm not at the extremes, you know, whatsoever. But I think like a lot of people our age are starting to think about this stuff more and more. And, you know, people are super into you know, their sleep now and their food now and their exercise. And, you know, we kind of poke fun at it around, you know, the office, how, you know, you're supposed to get, you know, the light exposure every morning, but it just seems like the point is, is that these things that are now conversational, um, you know, tidbits of wisdom on how to improve your health are just now exactly that they're conversational. They're not, you know, there's no gatekeeping now in the health space anymore. It's out in the open and people can choose to run with it. And a lot of people are choosing to run with it, but it's interesting because I think the thing that kind of underlines everything that we're seeing is not just this idea of, okay, how can I immediately get more productive in my day to day? How can I just feel good? It's about kind of the bigger picture. It's about, longevity. It's like, how can I stay, you know, how can I not only be fit today, but how can I stay fit years and years into the future? Yeah, totally agree with everything you just said. And I do think that this is a, a, a big trend that we we should be paying attention to for people's lives, but also the technological implications of it and the business implications of it, the economic implications of it when it comes to our healthcare system. I think these are all, these are all big things that we do need to be paying attention to. And today we do have a fantastic guest who can speak to all that. She is one of the world's foremost neuroscientists. I say that with no hyperbole or exaggeration. Dr. Allison Sekuler is the Sandra A. Rotman Chair in Cognitive Neuroscience and Vice President of Research at Baycrest Health Services. And she's the President and Chief Scientist at the Center for Aging and Brain Health Innovation. Dr. Allison Sekuler, thank you so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here. All right. So neither Sarah nor I are are STEM people. So I think I want to <laughs> give you a, a moment here to give us an open-ended description of what your focus is, what your work is, to set the stage for the you know larger conversation. Sure. I, I think you don't have to be a STEM person to understand why what we're interested in is so important, because it really affects almost everyone uh, who I know. The, the main goal that we have in both of the organizations that I run is to help older people live their best possible lives. We want to see a world where every older person is able to live a life of uh, fulfillment and inspiration and dignity. That's really at the core of everything that we do. And then, you know, more specifically, what we do is we focus on the next generation of research and education to be able to enable that goal, um, as well as advancing all of the sorts of solutions that can help people live at home, age at home well, live longer and live better, uh, and uh, really do everything we can to prevent dementia, detect it as early as possible, uh, treat it um, as, as precisely as possible if people end up being diagnosed, and of course, care for people who are living with dementia. So that's in a nutshell what we're working on. And how do you go about doing that? Tell us a little bit about the Center for Aging and Brain Health and Innovation. Yeah. So one of the organizations around CABI, the Center for Aging and Brain Health Innovation, is this solution accelerator. And we work with organizations across the entire uh, innovation pipeline, all the way from people who are just kind of coming up with a great idea for something that they can be doing in this space. So they might be frontline care workers. They could be occupational therapists or personal support workers speech language pathologists, people who are working day in and day out with older adults. And they know what works for for their clients. They know what works for their patients, but they don't think of themselves as entrepreneurs. 
And so what we can do is we can help to change their mindset and help them see that what's working for their folks may be able to be applied in much bigger ways. So we help them uh, sort of design and test and spread and scale their ideas and really train them in, in, in thinking themselves as entrepreneurs. We have that at the very early stages, the sort of what we call design and development. Um, we also do validation testing. So we, we take companies, for example, or entrepreneurs who have a solution, but it needs to be validated in real world settings, large scale and real world settings. Because it's one thing to test something in a lab, and it's a different thing to go mm-hmm. into a workforce and see, is this going to work with you know people's workflow? Will it be adoptable? Will people respond to it? And then once we have the validated solutions, we also work with companies that are even more advanced, um, and we can do equity investments um, and or other kinds of advising for them that really help them spread and scale. Um, and we'll even take them on on international trade missions so that they can, um, you know, share share the the great work that Canada is doing with the world. So we work across that entire spectrum from design and develop through uh, validation, through spread and scale. And the focus areas that we work on are cognitive and mental health and well-being. Uh, We work on caregiver support. We work on care coordination, uh, solutions that will help people age at home as well as possible. And we recently added a theme connected to financial health and wellness, which you might say, what's that got to do with dementia? But it's quite clear that if people don't have the financial Mm. resources to be able to take care of themselves, it's going to lead to problems down the road. And we also want to do more to keep people as they're aging in the workforce longer so that people can be contributing more to the economy. One more thing, I guess, to ground the conversation. Can we talk a little bit about the spectrum of aging and how kind of aging uh, affects the brain as you move along that spectrum? Um, And maybe more specifically, like how um, is someone maybe in their 30s? How should they be thinking about brain health versus someone who's maybe in their 60s and 70s? Yeah, it's really interesting because we often don't really even start talking about things like Alzheimer's or other types of dementia until people get older. Uh, there's a lot of stigma that's associated with it. But in fact, um, I'm you know looking at both of you and thinking you should be thinking about dementia right now, you know, despite the fact that you are so young, uh-uh. <laughs> um, because dementia doesn't just start when we're older. Dementia starts when we're younger, right? It's it's we we see mm-hmm. the end result of it when we're older. But the process of getting to a diagnosis of dementia starts decades before you will end up with that diagnosis. So we have another project uh, through the other organization that I run, which is the Baycrest Academy for Research and Education. It's a, a knowledge mobilization project that's funded by the Public Health Agency of Canada, where what we're doing there is trying to help people understand simple changes to their life that they can do to prevent dementia. So that project is called Defy Dementia. And some mm. of the things that you can do uh, are simply, you know, take l- little steps toward improving your um, lifestyle. So sleeping better, eating better, exercising, social engagement, decreasing loneliness, um, obviously, you know, not not drinking in excess. Um, if you can, if you can minimize your chances of, of uh, being stressed, uh, having depression, there's a lot of these kinds of things that you can do little tiny changes in your life that will decrease your dementia risk in the long term. And the sooner you can get started on that, the easier it is for you to continue that through your lifetime. So I'm harping Mm -hmm. on my kids who are in their twenties to start doing some of these things, not everything all at once, but take little baby steps so that by the time that they're in their fifties, like me, um, it's a lot easier for them to be living the right kind of life to decrease their dementia risk. So let's stay on that point for a second here. Um, when you talk about, I mean, you hear a lot about brain health in the context of like that, you know, sleeping well and eating better. You kind of hear these like abstract kind of, you know, ties. Yeah. If you sleep better, your brain kind of works. But I'm wondering from a scientist's lens, like what are the biological indicators that you're watching for? Like when you tell me to drink less alcohol, when you tell me to sleep better, like what are you actually measuring in the brain that would indicate that any of those things are making a positive difference? Like what's that balance look like? Hmm. Yeah. So, so there's different things that happen to your brain with, with the different kinds of interventions. So sleep, for example, is within the past decade or so, I think it's become really clear that it's 
one of the most important things for brain health writ large. And one of the reasons for that, and, and one reason it may be related to this decrease in dementia, is because what we one of the things that we think is happening when you're sleeping is basically your body is taking advantage of that state to clean the garbage out of your brain. Um, and if you if you aren't reaching a, a, a good sleep state, um, then that physiological mechanism of basically clearing all the garbage out of your brain um, can't happen. That's that's not the only thing that happens, obviously, when you're sleeping, but it is one thing. Another thing that happens when you're sleeping is some of the connections that help us form memories get reinforced. Um, and so sleep, for a whole bunch of different reasons, is, is going to be um, helping through these different sorts of mechanisms to reduce your dementia risk. Um, obviously sleep does a lot of other things too. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's also been shown that people who sleep better are less likely to be overweight and less likely to end up with heart, heart issues. And anything that you can do that's good for your heart is actually also good for your brain. Um, and so that's one of these sorts of things when you're exercising, yes, it's good for your heart, but it's also helping to build new brain connections and it's helping more blood flow there, which brings more oxygen, which which helps again mm. in in strengthening the brain. So you're strengthening not just your body, but you're strengthening your brain when you're exercising. Um, and one of the recent um, risk factors that's just sort of been coming to the fore is air pollution, right? Which you wouldn't think, you think, what's it, you know, air pollution and and brain health, what, what do the two have to do with each other? But it turns out that the particulates, if you're breathing in a lot of um, pollutants like fumes from, from cars or smoke from forest fires, actually some of those pollutants can get into the brain. The particulates can get into the brain um, and they can, you can actually end up with, um, you know, arteries in the brain getting blocked just as your arteries in the heart can get blocked. So there's all of these different um, mechanisms. There can be inflammation um, in the brain. Um, and that's why certain foods, uh, if you eat a lot of blueberries with really thick skins, that's good for you. Um, those sorts of things with antioxidants can help to clean out the brain and also um, can, can um, you know, there's things to reduce inflammation. Anything that you can do to reduce inflammation, to uh, cl- clean out basically the garbages in the brain, um, and to strengthen the connections in the brain, those are all going to be really positive for you. Uh, not just in defying dementia, but in helping you live your best life. So it comes it comes from a lot of these different kinds of areas, but mainly inflammation, um, h- having an accumulation of um, blockages of different sorts. Um, those are those are two of the big ones, uh, and and you know these these lifestyle changes can really help uh, to reduce those. So there's the the prevention side. I'm curious about the treatment side. Once people start to experience cognitive decline, what tools or pharmaceuticals or treatments do we have right now to address that? Uh, and is there anything that you see coming in the near future that might uh, improve that treatment? Yeah, it's interesting. People probably have heard of all the failures in drug treatments, for example, for Alzheimer's and related Mm -hmm. dementias. I should just say, in case people are wondering, Alzheimer's and dementia are not the same. Uh, So just as a little aside, dementia is a whole series of different changes. Uh, It could be Alzheimer's, which is the most common one. There's also Lewy body's disease. There's also frontotemporal dementia, vascular dementia, Parkinson's dementia, and so on. So we often, people will talk about Alzheimer's and dementia as, as one and the same, but Alzheimer's is one example of yeah. dementia. Um, so, um, but it, okay. there have been drugs focused particularly on Alzheimer's and what they have found is sometimes they help to uh, clear out, as I was saying, some of, some of these, the, the plaques and the, the, the dangerous proteins that are in the brain. But if it, if it's treated too late, you've already got damage in the brain, right? So what you'll see is that, um, you know, if you think about it this way, that you, You've got uh, a brain that ha- is filled, it's filled already with a lot of the bad stuff and you apply a drug that gets rid of it. Now you've just got holes basically where that bad stuff was, right? So what oh, you really want to do is try to get in there before the bad stuff is formed, right? Um, so at the earliest possible stage. And that's where we're starting to see some success in the drugs. So the drugs that we're trying to treat people with advanced dementia, advanced Alzheimer's and other dementias, they weren't really that successful. Um, because they weren't being combined with ways of stimulating new kinds of, of, of cell growth, for example. But 
if you can catch it early enough, it does seem like it's having at least some effect. And one of the things that we're really excited about is is what we might be able to see by combined therapies. So if we can catch it early enough, and there's quite a lot of work, and we can talk about this in early detection of dementia, that's some of the work in my lab and others um, at the Rotman Research Institute and across the country, um, we've, we're trying to figure out how do you detect dementia years or even decades before there's any memory symptoms, for example. Hmm. Because if you can get in early enough, then you can put the right interventions in place. And so now what we're thinking, though, is if you can get people on these drugs that have been approved to be able to clear out some of the uh, negative elements in the brain, and you're combining it with other treatments, whether it is some of these lifestyle changes that we're talking about, or whether it is stem cell therapy, or whether it is brain stimulation therapy, uh, there's a whole or cognitive training, there could be a whole bunch of different combinations of therapies that are going to work better. And that's really one of the key, um, I think, areas for growth that we're looking at at, at Baycrest. Yeah, let's talk about that early detection piece. Is that so that would be required in order to pursue this line of treatment, I guess you need to be able to catch this much earlier. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, if you think about cancer, as an example, um, you know, there's all sorts of screening now for cancer, so that you can catch it as early as possible. We think about brain health the same way. In fact, at Baycrest, what we're really aiming to do is to do for aging and brain health, what precision medicine did for cancer. So we're working to create sort of a new field called precision aging. Um, and we want to do predictive neuroscience mm. for precision aging. What that means really is that we're going to take all of the data that we're seeing in everyday life, um, you know, and use it to predict who is most at risk in a really personalized way so that we can have personalized approaches to the prevention of dementia and the early detection and the treatment and the care. So we really want to take that model that's been so successful in cancer and apply it into aging and brain health. So in cancer, you know, if you didn't have the way of detecting it before the tumor got big enough, it was very difficult to treat. You can think about dementia in the same way. So we want to do that same sort of approach where we can detect it as early as possible. And uh, Cabby's actually funded a number of of companies uh, that are doing exactly that. So ReadySpec, for example, is one company out of Toronto that we funded um, through a couple of our programs in Cabby. Um, and that's using just a basic eye test that you can you can take when you go for your your annual or you know twice once every two years you get your eyes checked at the optometrist uh, there's a camera that they can put in there that can actually using different ai methods predict not just you know can you what kind of glasses do you need but are you showing early signs of dementia um that that you know mm. could could be um detected again years and years before you need to have any kind of um, medical treatment for it so that you can start to make the the right kinds of interventions. So we also have through Baycrest uh, a brain health test called Cognicity that comes out of the research uh, institute, the Rotman Research Institute. And, uh, you know, I take it every six months just to check how is my brain doing. Uh, and it, it shows you, mm. you know, uh, it, 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 you have a baseline and you just want to know, like, if your baseline starts to go down, 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 right, then that's that's a sign that maybe you should get it looked at. Um, and again, I would advise, even though y'all are young, I would advise you to start doing that now. Just It's always just good to have a baseline, right? So just like if you're a woman, you get mammograms, that's your baseline. Uh, cognicity is a baseline for your brain health. So what's that test that you're taking every six months? Yeah, like, can we what, take yeah. that online <laughs> yeah. or something? I yeah, go it's do that free. Right it's online. It's called Cognicity. What is it? It's, so it's 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 a very simple online computer test. It just takes 20 minutes. And uh, cogni it came out of the research that was happening at the Raman Research Institute and, and other places. And it has four different tests that that tap into different kinds of cognitive functions. So there's a, a face memory task. There's you might have played when you were little that memory game with the cards, you know, where you turn one over and here's a star and you turn over another and it's a triangle. Then you got to turn it back over and try to remember it has one of those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And it's a couple of other kinds of tests as well that we know are predictive of cognitive impairment. And so um, it's, a, it's a way just to sort of see how are you doing. And it does give you for your age, it gives you an assessment of how you're doing relative to other people, your age group as well. I, I don't worry so much about that unless it's really, really, really low. Um, I, I, because for example, I'm really bad at recognizing faces. So I'm always going to be worse 
on, you know, my scores can be worse because I'm just bad at that part. Um, mm. But what's important for me is how is it changing over time, right? So, you know, when I had COVID, I took it, you know, I was way down, but then I went back up, right? Um, so it's, yes, yeah, it's, mm. it's free. It's just cognicity.com, free for everyone. I wonder as an expert in this space, if you can give us a sense of whether uh, things are getting better or worse, because I, I think I personally have trouble squaring like increased awareness about brain health and that we have more information that people seem to be kind of leading into the preventative stuff that you mentioned, kind of paired with the fact that we do have an aging population. We do have, you know, more kind of mental health disorders that are impacting people yeah. that are younger and younger. And so how do you, I guess, look at the space as a, as a whole? Are things on track to get worse? Are things getting better? Where are we at? You know, it's a really good question, Sarah, because I, I think that in some ways, because the risk of getting worse is so great, um, I think it just highlights the potential for getting better if we can address these issues of stigma and awareness. Because right now, just like when I was growing up, people didn't talk about cancer. If you had a diagnosis of cancer, you, you didn't want to tell anyone because there actually was quite a lot of stigma associated with it. And, and if you had a diagnosis, it was almost mm. a certain death sentence. Um, now, it's much more talked about in the open. Um, people often talk about, you know, the the procedures they're doing for for early detection um, and treatments and so on, and and that's because you know there was just a wholesale shift in the way society thought about it. That's what we need for aging. That's what we need for dementia. People don't realize that there are things that you can do if you have a diagnosis of dementia. It's not necessarily a death sentence. And on our Defy Dementia podcast, we actually have a couple of examples of this. So our guest on our cognitive engagement episode, which I think is episode three, uh, she was diagnosed with young onset Alzheimer's. She, uh, her name is Rebecca Chop. She was the chancellor of the University of Denver. When she was diagnosed, her first neurologist told her within five years, she won't be able to button her own shirt. So she got a second neurologist. Um, 10 years later now, post-diagnosis, she just wrote another book, right? So, and she did certain things wow. to slow the progression, right? And um, another person, uh, Myrna Norman out of British Columbia, she's 15 years post-diagnosis. She had, was diagnosed with, uh, with um, uh, frontotemporal dementia. She was told that within five years, she would be dead. Uh, but she started a group, a social engagement group called the Purple Angels in British Columbia, uh, and and she is thriving. So, you know, the, the idea that just because someone has a diagnosis means there's nothing that you can do, that's, it's not true. Unfortunately, a lot of people will see decline. Uh, and, and we do need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to treat those people. But you shouldn't assume just because you have a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment or dementia that that is the end. Often thinking about it that way accelerates the end. Right, so you really have to dig in and and learn what you can do to slow the progression, and the same sorts of things that you can do to prevent dementia are the things that you can do to slow the progression in many cases. Hmm. So, when someone gets a diagnosis like that, I guess specifically in these examples, and someone's so young and it's so severe, what are the specific things that they're doing? Are they focusing more on some of the, I guess, the lifestyle things that you mentioned, or are they leaning more into those drug therapies that you mentioned would be used to treat people kind of at the later stages? or try to at least. Yeah. Well, now that we have some drugs that have been approved um, for people who are diagnosed early, people obviously are, are making use of some of those drugs. Um, but they're also, right, the, the biggest thing that they're doing is really these lifestyle changes. So for Rebecca Chop, uh, she really, you know, given her background uh, in, in academia, she really dove into learning, lifelong learning, and she started painting. And, um, and that also brought her more social engagement because she was taking painting classes. And she didn't just do sort of paint by numbers. She's, she was learning about all the different kinds of, you know, the, the history of art and, you know, different sorts of styles. And she really dove in and it was something she was passionate about and gave her a reason to wake up in the morning and, and go on and, and to continue to learning and growing. And so for her, that was one of the biggest things. And one of the things that, that we've noticed in discussing all of the different elements that for dementia prevention is that they're just so interconnected, right? So if you decide what you want to do is uh, increase your 
um, exercise. Uh, so do take a, start taking, you might take a class at a gym. Well, now you're interacting with other people. So you're also improving your social engagement. And often mm. when you're exercising, now you, you have the urge to eat better. So now you're improving your, uh, you know, your diet. And if you exercise during the day, it helps you sleep better. So the different prevention methods actually end up whether intentional or not getting getting interconnected but it's what's really important is for us to make sure that people know that there are ways to decrease your dementia risk and there are ways to slow the progression so that we start to think a little bit more differently people aren't um you know afraid to talk about the fact that they have a diagnosis or even wanting to find out do they have a diagnosis because i've heard so many people say i don't even want to know because there's nothing mm-hmm, you can yeah. do about it, but there are things that you can do about it. And so that's why I think we just really need to raise awareness. And, you know, then to your question, Sarah, even though the 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 expected numbers of cases is really, really rapidly increasing, if we can get people thinking about it and taking action a lot earlier, we can maybe put a, put a, a, a stem, we can stem the um that that tide of of growth. And if we can decrease the number of um, you know, cases, uh, you know, if we can just de- delay the onset of dementia by five years, we will decrease the number of dementia cases by 50%. So we don't, we don't even need to necessarily mm. avoid it altogether, but let's just delay it a little bit. And then that will really help us cope with this because we are headed toward an even bigger public health crisis um, if we don't deal with this soon. But we've seen in, in CABI and uh, in the research that's happening at Baycrest and the Rotman Research Institute, we've seen so many you know, really great innovations coming out of the research toward prevention, toward early detection, and and even toward treatment. Um, I'm really excited about some of the possibilities that we have, uh, you know, for integrating AI um, into into what we can do. Um, I know you you have talked about, uh, you know, the importance of AR and VR and XR on on, on previous episodes. There are now, um, you know, systems that are using AR and and VR to predict dementia um, and to treat it. You know, so there's. I think that we're the advances of technology are really helping us in ways that are um, moving us forward in all of these areas, whether it's prevention, detection, treatment, or care. Okay, let's talk about some of that innovation. Uh, you know, you mentioned a couple examples already, um, but I'm curious: are there any specific technological innovations that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, brain stimulation is one that we're seeing, and it doesn't have to be invasive. So you might have heard in certain Parkinson's uh, patients, they are doing implants into the brain, um, and then they stimulate the brain in certain ways. That can actually really help with the symptoms. But it looks now like, although that is quite successful in many cases, you may not have to do the inside the brain stimulation, you can actually do outside the brain on the top of the the head stimulation, or maybe on on the throat, there's different ways that you can stimulate the brain and, and the bodily systems to, to prevent um, or, or treat dementia. I think we're really excited about what's happening in that space. We're really excited about how people are taking information I mean, there's so much information about all of us out there, <laughs> you know, our, our watches are collecting information, our phones are collecting information. Um, as every time we buy something, information is collected. When we're banking, information is collected. And we're really excited about the possibility of combining all of that kind of information, you know, in the Internet of Things to help in um, both the uh, prevention sort of side of things and the early detection and, and treatment. So I think that, you know, especially as we start building in in more uh, of the ability for, uh, you know, AI to combine across those different kinds of modalities, I think that will be great. Um, I'm really interested in some of the uh, innovations in at-home um, medical therapies, in, including things like, um, your viewers can't see this, but this is a, a Muse system. This is a uh, uh, this is actually a brain computer interface. I don't know if you've seen it before, but this, um, you just put it on like a headband. Uh, and it was originally designed to help people learn how to do mindfulness meditation. Um, it has um, neuroscience built into it, electroencephalography. It measures the electrical activity in your brain and then uses that um, on board of the system to be able to give you instant feedback. So I can actually control my computer or my phone um, with with my brain. Um, so this is a, mm. it's a brain computer interface, if you will, but it also That's teaches cool. you how to do mindfulness meditation. And they have another version that helps you sleep better. 
um, these are commercially available for just a couple hundred dollars, right? So as we start to see more of these kinds of tools make their way into just our everyday lives, I think that that that's really exciting to me. Um, but what also gets me excited is is um, as we mentioned before the VR, AR, XR space. I think that there's so much possibility, and I know y'all were talking about um, Apple Vision Pro in a previous episode, and um, you know I couldn't agree more with with the things that you were saying that you know often you know what's being promoted right now isn't the final um, version of that. It's sort of for the early adopters and developers, but it will become sort of the standard. And once that's accepted, we're going to start to see um, AR, VR, XR in every element of our lives because it's soon going to be, you know, embedded within our glasses. And then it's really, then it's really another wearable, right? And then if you can combine the information of that with the information from your watch, with the information from all of these other sources, now there's enough power for the AI systems to really kick in uh, and, um, you know, assuming we're using AI for good and not for evil, I see a huge potential there too. So, um, I think in, in almost all of these different areas, uh, we're, we're right at the precipice, I think of where we're going to see some really exciting innovations. I definitely want to ask more about AI, but can we just pause on the AR VR applications for a minute? What are the, how does that tie into, to cognitive health? Like what are the specific ways that you think people will use AR and VR for their uh, you know, to make their cognitive health better? Well, I, I think you can use it again everywhere from prevention through detection, <clears throat> treatment and care. So on the prevention side, as you have more engaging kinds of activities um, through AR and VR, um, it will support you in all of those different elements that we're talking about. So for oh, example, think okay. about you're going to, you're going to the supermarket uh, and, you know, you've got an AR system that's embedded in your glasses I'm just making this up, by the way. There is no solution that I yeah, know yeah, it's yeah. like this. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you go to the supermarket and it's giving you little tips as you're looking at the different kinds of things. It looks at the chips and it might give you like a brain score for that particular kind of a food versus blueberries, mm. right? So you could imagine that would be a great app, right? That it's sort of in an interactive way helping guide you so that you can make the right kinds of food choices, right? Um, or if you're exercising, you could imagine it's also... Um, uh, there already are systems that can help to let you know, are you doing movements in the right way or to um, give you corrections if you're, if you're not like lifting your weights in the right way or something, um, or to give you suggestions for what the next exercises ought to be. Um, so from a prevention side, I think there's huge, huge opportunity. Uh, and then in the care side, if you go all the way, people living with dementia, um, you know, I think that where I get really excited is in thinking about how the different technologies are going to be colliding with each other, right? So, you know, we talked about brain-computer interfaces. We talked about um, AI. We talked about um, VR, AR, XR. So imagine you are living in a long-term care home with dementia, um, and, you know, you are looking to be engaged. You want to keep your brain active, um, you're in there even if you can't communicate. So if you can't tell someone what it is that you want to do, how do they make sure that you're getting the activities that you want? So now imagine there's a, a VR system. Um, you're immersed in a world and it's being driven by your own thoughts, right? That's, that's I think, eventually we're not there yet, but that's what we would like to see happen, that you've got a personalized approach to driving something that's that's helping um, whether it's listening to a certain kind of a music or seeing a certain kind of a scene, your own brain can be in real time sort of driving that. So that's that, that's at the very mm. other end of the care side. And it sounds like science fiction, but we actually are headed, um, you know, slowly, but we're headed in that direction now. Can we get some confirmation from you or, or, or assurances that there is someone working on this? Because when yeah. you hear about the Vision Pro announcement, <laughs> it seems like the highest, like they're just really fired up to get everyone on a conference call. But this seems way more useful and helpful yeah. for the general population to start thinking about these kind of applications. Yeah, I can assure you people are starting to think about, I was actually out at Apple uh, a few months ago. <laughs> So um, I can assure you um, that I've certainly told them they should be doing this. Uh, so um, and and we we're talking to lots of other people, and and there is work going on at our institute that's headed in this direction as well. And and of course it overlaps, you know, with some of the kinds of things that that Neuralink is doing, and and others that's a more invasive approach. But um, uh, companies like Interaxon are working on related kinds of things. I think where the trick is 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 in trying to pull together all of the groups that kind of have their own sort of narrow solution and say, 
how can we put all these different solutions together to really be able to do more? Um, so that's, and that's where Cabby comes in. I mean, because we, we fund so many different solutions. Um, we're kind of, you know, matchmakers in the space. So we're, we're absolutely within Cabby, within the Baycrest Academy for Research and Education. We are working toward this, um, you know, uh, every day. So, you know, it's going to take a while to get there, um, but it's something we're really excited about. Interesting. Uh, I want to ask you about AI a little bit. Um, because you know when you're interacting with ChatGPT or these other AI systems, it does give the impression sometimes of talking or chatting with another human being. And I'm wondering what similarities, like what are the big similarities, if any, and differences between these AI models like ChatGPT and the human brain in how they actually function? Very, very different. Um, I mean that the it you're brain is tricking you into thinking that you're interacting with something that is brain-like. Um, and, you know, it, it's right. <laughs> what, the, what the large language models like ChatGPT are doing is really just predict, predicting. They have a huge corpus of information that says, here are words that normally go together, here are thoughts that normally go together. And it's just doing sort of prediction, um, you know, of, of what, what would normally come next. Um, your brain does some of that prediction too. Um, and your brain does some of that interpretation. So your brain tries to make sense of what's coming into it, which is why you, you know, you look at that and you say it must be, it must be thinking the same way that I am. But there's lots of different ways to end up with a sentence. <laughs> um, and the way that our brain does it and the way that chat GPT does it is very, very, very different. Uh, so it's, um, you know, I, I think that some people will look at that and say, so if it's not working the way that a brain works, what use of it, you know, what use is it of us? And I, I, some of my colleagues even will say that, that they only want to be studying models that operate the same way that the brain operates. Uh, and that they try to develop the models to gain insight into how the brain operates. My perspective is a little bit different. I, I think that it depends on what your end goal is. If your end goal like mine is to help people live their best lives, do I care if the model is operating like a brain, I do not. Uh, if we can get the results that we need from whatever that model is, let's do it. So, you know, I think that there's different different ways that scientists approach it, and uh, that's that's really my approach. So it's it's not operating at all like the brain um, in in the global sense. Um, there's some similarity in that we all look for you know predictions and likelihoods, uh, but. But the mechanism is very, very different. But I don't think it matters. I, I think it still can be a really useful tool. You, I guess you can see that in certain cases when you are using ChatGPT. Like it's still not very good at some things like math where prediction might not work so well. But is it conceivable to you that even with the limitations of large language models, could they get sophisticated enough where they're functionally indistinguishable from what a human brain is doing the results that they're producing are indistinguishable or is the human brain and the way that we think just so fundamentally different that it's, it's never going to get to that point. I, I think it could, it can get in certain areas. It can get to the point where it's going to be indistinguishable. We haven't seen it doing as well in the creative areas because a lot of creativity by definition is the unexpected, right? So, you know, when you think about art, for example, new forms of art uh, are things that have never been done before. And so if your whole approach is building on what has been done before, it's going to be difficult to get into that area of, of creativity. But, you know, for things like um, there's huge amount of possibility, for example, for things like uh, um, fake, fake conversations, I guess is one way of thinking. I was trying to think of what's the right way of putting it. But, you know, um, as you were saying, uh, th there's, um, AI empowered already, there already have been AI empowered uh, therapy, right, uh, sessions. And, you know, people are actually, in some cases, more likely to tell things to this AI system than they are to a human. Um, so but it also works a lot better if, it, if they feel as though the response is human like, right. Uh, and so I think that in those sorts of situations, we absolutely are going to be able to get to a point where we'll be able to mimic uh, you know, what the therapist is getting at. Um, but in creativity, mm. I think we're going to see some more limitations. We may get there, um, but I think that's just going to be a lot harder not to crack. Interesting. And then when it comes to, you, you know, the application of AI in some of the 
companies that you see, where do you think it's showing the most promise when it comes to cognitive health and, you know, keeping people's brains working, working well, where's AI going to be deployed there? Well, we're already seeing it in a number of companies. Uh, Perceive AI has AI right in the title of their company um, out of Quebec. Uh, they're using it in this predictive neuroscience way where they're measuring uh, people's brain activity um, to be able to, again, to predict who's at risk for different kinds of brain disorders. Uh, another company called Darmian is, again, doing this predictive neuroscience using AI, um, looking in that case at uh um, MRIs, magneto, magnetic resonance imaging, uh, combined with other combined with other kinds of me- metrics, um, they've just gotten their FDA approval, um, and so that's again an early detection uh, approach. As I mentioned before, ReadySpec, which is doing this AI-enabled um, a- approach for early detection um, using you know, pictures of the back of your eye. That's another space. So certainly in this early detection space, we're going to see more and more of that. And I, I think that where the power will come in is is when we start combining all of those different elements and combining it with activities of daily life and um, information, you know, from your phone and from your watch. And, uh, you know, I think that that's, that's going to be really one way of doing it. But I think we're also going to see big impacts of AI, as I mentioned before, in terms of personalized care. So when I was describing the, you know, AR, VR, XR approach for people living with dementia, you can't do that without AI, right? Because you have to have an AI system that's able to interpret what's happening in your brain to be able to control the, whether it's controlling a robot, whether it's controlling um, a VR system, whether it's controlling um, the thermostat in your house, um, you know, all of those sorts of things are going to require AI. So I think for, for care, for treatment, uh, for detection, for prevention, we're going to see huge, huge impacts of it. But again, where we'll get the biggest bang for our buck is where we are combining AI across different kinds of modalities. So not just using AI in one use case, but combining them. I think that combining the platforms is, is always where we're going to see the biggest um, uh, impact. I have kind of a a random question and let me know if this is so silly, but one thing that I've always wondered is that as technology, and I'm now just talking about consumer technology, not even just sophisticated stuff. I'm talking about like, you know, Google maps and the way you listen to music and, and kind of just like the ease that technology has given us in the sense of just, you know, even the calculators on our phones. And I've always wondered how, you know, being able to plug in a destination on a map and not really think about where you're going, um, and the ways in which we use our brains less and less every day might impact the outcomes of our brains. And I'm wondering if there's any research on that or your Mm. thoughts on that generally. Um, and and if that's even a a thing. Yeah, there's, it's funny because every single technology that comes out, there's always a prediction that this technology is going to make us stupider, including the printing press. Right. So when the printing press came out and books were being printed, people were saying, well, if you can read the stories instead of having to orally share them, now we're all going to be stupider. So it's, it's whatever is invented. That's a, that's a, it's a meme. And, um, you know, I, I, I like to think of it that we, well, actually, I, I'm, I'm old enough that we, we're only allowed to use calculators in our math classes and our physics classes and so on. Like once I was just getting into like my, my end of high school, beginning of, of university, people were using slide rules and things like that before then. That's how old I am. Um, and, uh, you know, so, um, you know, when, when people, and people were, were thinking that, that you shouldn't be able to use your calculator um, because, you know, if you can't figure out how to do it in your head, then you're not going to, you know, have that ability in everyday life. And, and I'm thinking, how often, you know, do you need to be able to solve problems at the supermarket that would involve a slide rule? Probably not, not that often. Um, So you, you know, if you can save time, and it's not something that you really need to be able to do on a on a regular basis, then you actually have more of your brain to devote to other things, right? So, and that's what happened with the printing press is yes, people still can tell stories, but they also can read, and then they used that to be able to do more things. So I, I, I guess I'm an optimist. So I like to think that if we're if we're saving some capacity in our brain for 
the really easy stuff, it gives us more opportunity to take on more challenging problems. Um, but yeah, you, you want to make sure even if you can use a calculator, you still need your times tables, right? So, um, uh, I know this answer is a little bit rambly, but it, it's, it's, I, it, there's, there's trade-offs. Um, I don't, I don't think that every new innovation really is going to make us stupider. I think that if, again, it's how you use it. If you can use it in a way that supports you when you don't really need to go to the effort, then that's good. As long as you're then continuing to challenge your mind. So for us, in one of the elements for for defying dementia, for decreasing your dementia risk, is constantly challenging your brain. Um, if certain things become too rote, it actually, you could do them over and over. It's not going to help you. Um, it's just like if you're mm-hmm. exercising and you lift the same weights over and over, you know, you'll have gains at first, but eventually it's not going to help you. So if you really want to be pushing the capacity of your brain, you've got to keep trying new things and pushing yourself. So I, I don't think it's a bad thing that, you know, we can kind of um, use the map to tell us where to go so that we can concentrate on other kinds of things, right? So I um, also, I have no sense of direction. So if I did not have the map, I would be lost all the time. So <laughs> Oh, my God. I can't that's, imagine. <laughs> that's why things like crosswords, I guess, are good. Crosswords. Um, we do uh, Sudoku. Uh, uh, Wordle, all of those sorts of things. But it has to be something that's challenging for you and interesting. And um, we actually are going to be launching a Canadian version of a brain health game uh, with the brilliant minds of the folks who created Knuckle. I don't know if you know Knuckle, it's the Canadian version of Wordle. Um, and they also <laughs> have a new version, the Canadian version of Sudoku, which is called Knuckle. Um, and we're partnering with them to create a brain health version of that. So stay tuned, stay tuned for that. You'll have to let us know. We'll put it in the newsletter. Yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll yeah. people will love that. They're yeah. great guys. What is the Canadian version of Sudoku? <laughs> so just, it's so cool. Sudoku just numbers. <laughs> it's, there's no numbers. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's Canadian icons. Um, so it's oh, uh, emojis, okay. if you will. So there's a hockey stick and there's a polar bear, there's maple syrup. There's of course right. a Canadian flag. And, um, they have, if you go to Kanoku.ca, um, <laughs> they have, I think, Gosh, dozens of games every, you know, they have all the archives. Every day you can play a four by four, a six by six, a nine by nine, easy, hard, whatever. Um, and uh, so it's, um, uh, you know, y- you can always be challenged um, and you're just moving. You're basically, instead of moving numbers around, you're moving these these pictures around. Um, it's, it's loads of fun. And when you get it right, it gives you all these maple leaves um, celebrating, you know, confetti. So it's fun. I highly <laughs> recommend it. <laughs> I love it. Very cool. All right, Allison. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was, this was really interesting. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Sarah. Well, that was super interesting. I don't know about you, but I learned a ton about things, you know, practical things for myself, like how I can be taking better care of my brain, but also some really interesting business applications there. What do you think? Yeah, it's always fascinating because you read so much about brain health. I think especially these days as people become super obsessed with like this idea of like longevity and people get more into health and wellness. But I think obviously getting an expert's take on what the science behind that looks like and how people our age should actually be thinking about brain health and keeping your brain healthy Mm. is super interesting. I think, especially when Allison was talking about preventative care, Mm -hmm. like the fact that we, you know, maybe should be taking this cognitive IQ test every six months just to see like where things are at and like thinking about this stuff right now, I think, like most people, I didn't, you know, you, you think it's something that you just put off until well into the future, but she was saying decades mm-hmm. ahead of time, mm-hmm. you can actually slow, like, I guess, like slow the, you know, the, the deterioration of things, which is so interesting. Yeah. I also had no idea that there was, uh, so much innovation happening in the space, especially around things like early detection, like the eye tests that she was talking about that you can do at, at your eye doctor or like at home tests. Uh, that was the hearing test. No, but the eye, eye test at the eye doctor. <laughs> the hearing test. Yeah. I feel like these are just things that we should just be doing. Right. You know, that should just be like a normal part of your your healthcare regimen. I guess, you know, kind of how, like she was saying, getting screened for cancer just becomes a, a normal part of healthcare at a certain age. Mm-hmm. I think it's super um, encouraging just to see that there are developments in those spaces to kind of 
like she mentioned the hearing test, all we're missing is really an eye test that's online then. But it, you could get to the point where like your GP just sends you like a type form and is like, here are all the links. If you could just do these tests on your computer and just like, let me know where things are. Yeah. Um, you know, that could be interesting, but it's good because it really just gives you the, you can just, if you can do those things so regularly and so quickly and at home, the second that something starts to slip or, you know, oh, my hearing, I guess, wasn't, isn't what it was maybe a year ago, six months ago, you can immediately take that information and um, go assess what's, what's wrong, which is like a very optimistic, you know, layout for the, what the future of health could, could look like, especially at a time where the future of health kind of seems dire, you know, you can't see anyone, you know, the wait times are so long, but this is the stuff that makes me feel really good. Hmm. Also makes me more bullish on AR and VR. You know, I see the vision pro. I'm like, ah, it's really on there for me. (laughs) But when you hear about the applications for people's mental health and cognitive health, I think that makes it a much more appealing proposition. Uh, And, you know, some of the ideas that Dr. Sekuler was, was floating there, just they do make sense to me, you know, seeing in a grocery store the information about how this could impact your your brain health or just your overall health. Uh, you know, of course, that's a great app. 100%. Someone should be working on that. There's like really actionable takeaways from this episode, which I feel really good about. Totally. I'm going to go do that <laughs> uh, test, test yeah. Uh, immediately. No, yeah, I don't think it was an IQ test, was it? I guess we'll find I out. I tried when to we do Google it. it and it said a cognitive IQ test. We're going to have to get, okay. we'll, we'll rewind. We'll, we'll link it. We'll link it in the show notes yeah. too. But I'm immediately... We won't link our scores, though, or disclose our scores. No, that's between me and my healthcare (laughs) provider. All right. Well, should we leave it there? I think so. Okay. This has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. If you enjoyed this, you can find all of our past episodes by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please do go leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. We really appreciate that. And we will see you next week.